Pro Vice Chancellor, Ambassadors, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you'll be able to hear me. Dick, thank you for that marvelous introduction. There's an old Texas story about introductions that says, my daddy Willie would have loved that introduction and my mama would have believed it all. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be here and indeed an honor uh, to participate in the Legacy Fulbright Lectures and to be the first to deliver three. This is my third opportunity. Maybe I'll get it right. It's a great and indeed serious privilege as well uh, to be here in the name of Senator J. William Fulbright. I join Stephen Whitefield and Dick Arndt in thanking all of those that they mentioned. I'd like to thank the master of Pembroke, Giles Henderson, who is here, and indeed uh, all of those in the United Kingdom, including Kate Candy, and of course, Penny Egan, who went out of their way to make this both a comfortable and indeed exciting and interesting experience for me. Senator Fulbright, as you've heard, did many things very well. I had a number of personal experiences with the Senator and look back on them always as great learning experiences. He was the author of The Arrogance of Power, and I've spent my career in diplomacy, and those two themes, I hope, will inform my lecture with you today. I had a trying and difficult experience with the Senator. On Saturday, President Nixon invaded Cambodia. On Monday, I had a long-standing appointment to appear before the Senator as Chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee on an entirely unrelated subject accompanied happily by a military officer with many stars in full uniform. President Nixon did not tell the Senator about the invasion, nor did he tell me or the military officer. But happily, the military officer got the bulk of the questions, and we both enjoyed a massive tongue lashing at the senator's behalf uh, to explain to us, indeed, why he believed what we are doing and the way in which the administration was using military force was entirely misconceived. The lesson stuck, and it will be, indeed, one of my themes today. It was an interesting and, indeed, unusual experience, and I thank the military officer for bearing the brunt of the senator's tongue lashing uh, by, in fact, appearing in full uniform. <laughs> Today, I want to talk about three simple subjects. An old friend once said, any good Methodist sermon has three points. So today, we'll do a good Methodist sermon. Point number one, I want to talk about what's changing in the world as we look at it. I want to talk about the challenges that, in particular, my country faces but I believe also faces our friends here in the United Kingdom, on who we always count for good advice and occasionally, uh, indeed, corrective and, I hope, useful uh, thinking about where we should go. And then I want to talk, in addition, about the challenges that are out there for us both. And then finally, some thoughts about, with some humility, my country ought to be doing about dealing with those challenges, particularly in the diplomatic sphere. 
What is changing, of course, is change itself in the world, and it's a trite word, and things are moving rapidly, and globalization is something you all know about. If you're too old to see the screen, at least you know, in fact, that regularly it is producing mountains of information more than indeed any single human being uh, can absorb or deal with. And I'm waiting for the technicians to provide us the new and very useful programs which will select the wheat from the chaff, the brilliant from the pedestrian, and make sure that our diplomats and indeed all of us uh, have the benefit of that kind of technology. But the technology is putting us in touch with the world that is moving rapidly and things that just a decade ago would have appeared only on the back pages of obscure newspapers are now front page news for all of us. And indeed, an entirely new kind of media has been formed and is in operation and is paralleling uh, what those of us uh, well over the age of 70 used to believe uh, was the home truth from the true press. Uh, all of that has changed in ways that are so remarkable and so different uh, that we need to take those into account as we look at diplomacy uh, in the decades to come. And this is the 21st century. Uh, but that, of course, has been said often. I repeat it only because I think it is one of the most remarkable changes. Not only is the subject matter of diplomacy coming at us, but new methods of dealing with diplomacy are being brought to fruition uh, just as, in fact, we talk about the subject. The second, and I think very important and significant issue, and it harkens back to some of the Senator's lessons, is that we have found that military force is just not a very good substitute for diplomacy. Not just in terms of what it can achieve, uh, but what it doesn't achieve. Uh, if we look at it from the period before the use of military force, the immediate and indeed significant move to military force to try simply to solve hard diplomatic problems uh, uh, loses all of the opportunities that diplomacy buttressed by a strong economy and indeed buttressed by a strategic power uh, can achieve in the world without the losses that military force be brings us. And Iraq is of course a typical example. The combat operation may have been brilliantly executed last a very short period of time, but after 10 years we left that country uh, with a great number of the problems still deeply unresolved and many obviously still waiting out there in wait uh, for us to deal with. Military force is from a diplomat's point of view extremely useful to have behind you as indeed is economic power and strength. Uh, but any country which uses military force for 10 years in two wars without resolving the problem threatens to do two or three things. Undermine the credibility of military force itself uh, as a sovereign remedy to problems and at the same time undermine the capacity uh, that nations have with strong military forces to buttress and strengthen their diplomatic uh, initiatives and efforts as they go ahead. A fairly simple understanding. Uh, it seems to me best epitomized by Winston Churchill, who was earlier quoted here today, who said in the House of Commons at the time that Lend-Lease was being considered in the United States, 
give us the tools and we will finish the job. And we are now in danger of saying, give us the job and we will finish the tools. Not a very good reversal of Churchillian logic. But we need to be conscious and aware of that particular problem and how it relates uh, to our future in the realm of diplomacy and its interrelationship with military force. In addition, we are moving into an era that is even more multilateral and multipolar than we have seen. An era when we need to consult many countries about many subjects, where we need, in a sense, their shared wisdom, but indeed their backing and support as we go ahead uh, with resolutions to the many problems that are popping up ever more rapidly on our Blackberries, on our iPods, on our television screens, or whatever else they're popping up on. Uh, this is another significant endeavor, and it's changing much of the nature of diplomacy. Diplomacy is traditionally covered bilaterally in many places around the world, uh, but that bilateral activity is now more and more focused on multilateral meetings and multilateral endeavors to resolve problems, and it requires a new outlook and indeed a new understanding. We also need, from the perspective of my country, uh, to take a look seriously at two concepts that are now prevalent in the world and are not unrelated to the question of multipolarity. One of those is the unipolar concept. My own humble opinion is that if there was ever a unipolar moment, it was so fleeting as to never have been caught. And I define unipolarity as the ability of a state completely alone on a very important issue to do exactly what it wishes. And my sense is, in my diplomatic experience beginning in 1959, I saw no such occasion. No such occasion. The second question is on the other side of the ledger, so to speak. The American decline. I'm not there yet. In my view, we call it in the United States, and perhaps they do in Edinburgh, a Scotch verdict, not proven. It's a very interesting question. What is happening, of course, is that many more countries are moving up, if you like, the ladder of leadership in the world. That's multipolarity, and I think there's nothing really wrong with that. It means you're more tested, your diplomacy requires deeper engagement and wider understanding. Uh, but I see, in fact, that we are still able in the United States to maintain our economic strength, our military strength, and it will be tested as we seek to solve the yet unsolved question of deficits, but I believe we will come through. And even more important, principles and values, which we significantly have shared with you in this country, from which we have borrowed liberally, and on which I believe we still have a distinct sense of common commitment and mutual dedication. And this is, in my view, significant. Two other characteristics of the changing world I think are worth mentioning. Diplomats have had a tendency to classify issues in my country as bilateral between two countries and global or functional in scope 
issues such as how should we deal with the world financial crisis or energy policy. They have a relationship across the board. We are moving in this day and age uh, to many more of the functional and global questions as being the most salient and challenging, as you will see in a moment when I move to discuss the seven challenging questions that are out there before us. And secondly, I think it is also very important to note that preeminent among them is the question of economics. And indeed, economics, the management of economics, the current financial crisis is a great challenge for all of us. And one cannot help escaping the notion in the press, particularly in this part of the world, of the potentially existential questions now being raised, whether in Greece or in Spain, not just for the European Union, but for the countries of the Union themselves. A final point, if we begin to think strategically in the days ahead about the issues that are out ahead of us, it is impossible in my view to continue to consider them in the old traditional stovepipes that have been part of our diplomatic understanding. Such questions, for example, as non-proliferation are intimately linked with arms control and disarmament and what we do about the future of nuclear and other kinds of weapons of mass destruction and so on. So I'm going to use the diplomatic escape valve in talking about the seven challenges next before us, of moving these into clusters or bundles or baskets of issues, which are closely interrelated, in which I believe for two reasons we need to continue to think about even if we are not capable of acting on the bundle as a whole uh, as a strategic matter uh, in the context of the interrelationship. Uh, the simple question of energy, environment, and climate change. We all know that if we take political decisions on one of the elements, the other two are going to be vitally affected. Those sets of clusters uh, provide us if we think about them strategically with some opportunities. One is the old bugbear that used to worry Bill Clinton enormously, the unintended consequences issues. If we begin to take them out of the stovepipes and look at them more broadly, we have at least an opportunity to consider unintended consequences. And the second question for a diplomat is very important because there is often leverage available in a negotiating context across the basket that doesn't exist if we just significantly stovepipe the problem within its narrower context. And I think that as you see some of these questions, you'll see that some of the answers perhaps will come more easily in that fashion. Three of the seven questions in my view present potentially existential dangers. Uh, to my country and to other countries around the world. The first I like to term as rivals and partners. Here I would say China, Russia, India, the European Union and its member states, Japan, Brazil, and if you want to add others, feel free. I have no firm view on that. These are countries that in many ways, for the United States at least, uh, will be very significant as we look at the multipolar world ahead. 
They are countries that in many ways will be affected by the policies that all of us adopt toward them and that they in return adopt toward us. And in looking ahead at what we will do, I will want to talk about a strategy or two uh, for dealing with this set of problems. The second set of issues that I think is important here is one I alluded to a moment ago. The nexus of questions linked together by weapons of mass destruction. Nuclear weapons, certainly, very important. And here, arms control and disarmament and non-proliferation, and indeed, the thinking that is now going on as a result of the initiative a few years ago of a number of people in my country complemented around the world to say, is it conceivable, is it possible that we can move eventually toward a world without nuclear weapons? It seems millennial, maybe delusional, but it is an important question that is now preoccupying the thoughts of many people. And there are certainly, uh, I think, creative ideas in the direction of moving that way. A third question, and I alluded to this earlier, is the financial crisis. And it covers the whole basket from home mortgages, through banking, and indeed <clears throat> through disruption of major enterprises into macroeconomic policy, into the treatment of debt, uh, certainly domestic issues in my, in my country. And one of the centerpieces of our election uh, will be, in fact, whether uh, we can sustain an effort to meet our debt crisis, believe it or not, uh, by both increased revenue collection and budget cutting. Uh, and in my country, there are serious differences, believe it or not, uh, over whether, in fact, additional revenue collection is both wise and useful. Uh, my sense is uh, that we remain an outlier in the international community in that regard, um, but it will be a severe test. <clears throat> Moving beyond, uh, I think that somewhere in between existential and very important is the extended Middle East. The area from Gibraltar, uh, perhaps all the way over uh, to Afghanistan. We have seen in this region a potential to produce more problems than we can deal with. And I will just lightly mention them. Uh, certainly your questions on these issues uh, should be something, if you're interested, on which we should focus together. The Arab transformation, and I hesitate to use the word spring or fall in connection, is a very important and seriously disturbing and indeed challenging and maybe a set of issues that presents us with great opportunities as we look ahead. Uh, Egypt is the centerpiece. Syria is indeed the most difficult and taxing and trying of the problems, and in between we have Libya and Yemen, and Jordan and Morocco, which are attempting to find new ways to deal with their own problematic questions, and obviously with tribal and indeed sectarian differences, Bahrain, and so on. There's no one formula that I believe is going to sustain answers to all of these questions. Military intervention, in my view, has serious and indeed perilous limitations that we need to respect and understand. I don't know that we yet have a way 
to end the killing in Syria. Uh, but we should bend our major efforts. And we should put very heavy weight on Russia and China, who recently stood in the way of moving in that direction, to see, in fact, whether uh, they can be made uh, to become motivated by the price they are currently paying in the international community uh, for blocking our effort to be able to use sanctions uh, to move the process of change in Syria ahead. Arab-Israeli questions have been vexing and indeed problematic for both the United Kingdom and the United States for over 60 years. We will not, in my country, see a serious effort uh, to move until after our elections. But there are many things that we can be doing, including thinking now about how to present a framework to the negotiating parties that can not only get them to the table, uh, but provide an answer to two issues. What should they not be negotiating about? Which proposals and ideas from both sides are entirely beyond the bounds of reality? something that they have not yet absorbed or understood, but more importantly, where should they concentrate their negotiations to produce an answer on the critical issues? Iraq, in my view, leaves us a legacy of instability and disturbance. One hopes it does not lead to more active fighting, but there is no certainty. And bringing the international community toward a solution, if indeed that can be achieved, uh, has the potential, at least, to do more than either the present government of Iraq acting alone and against its minority interests, or indeed the United States, which has shown that it is not capable acting with the Iraqi government in resolving the problems of respect for minority rights and majority rule and so on. Iran is enormously vexing and challenging. A, a nuclear question which has happily moved toward negotiations but with deep uncertainty as to whether those negotiations are yet capable of producing a result, but with at least some initial interesting opportunities suggested by the Iranian side as a way to open the door, those initial cracks, which are always so hard in diplomacy, but which can bring about a solution. Uh, and my feeling is, until we start, we will never know whether, in fact, there is a diplomatic answer. And I'm very happy to see that within recent months, President Obama in the United States has committed himself much more firmly than ever before to diplomacy as the way to move things ahead. Uh, against the backdrop, as you know, from January to April of an enormous amount of talk about war. A war that is not supported and will not be supported, in my view, by the American public. Uh, two wars in the Middle East without real conclusion are enough. And certainly, uh, this particular set of difficulties will continue to be a challenge. And in Afghanistan and Pakistan, I see no real reason why the United States should remain in Afghanistan. Our interests were <coughs> certainly <coughs> in not being attacked again by the people who came as a result of their foothold in Afghanistan uh, to attack us on 9-11. They are mostly gone. They happen to be present, unfortunately, in a country that is seemingly allied with us in the effort, Pakistan, uh, to move the process ahead. Uh, and if there is any reason uh, to continue to stay in Afghanistan, it is perhaps 
only to avoid some kind of massive destabilization in a nuclear-armed, badly governed, military-run, and increasingly fundamentalist Pakistan state, a real challenge for us all. Three other questions concern me and I think are important. One of which I think is defined in terms of the cluster of interrelated issues by the words poverty, growth, development, food, health, water, failed states, international crime and narcotics trafficking, pressures for migration, terrorism in some of its aspects, trade effects, and so on. It is a nexus of very difficult issues to which we have lent some of our best minds and some of our most serious efforts toward resolution. Money alone, we know, will not do the job. It has to be engaged by the country and the people themselves to make this move. We have sought ways to stimulate those actions. We have learned that we do not know best in all of those issues, but we find it extremely hard to convince uh, every new generation of developers that somehow it is better to listen than to talk. These are big and interesting and difficult challenges. We see progress in the world, uh, but in my view, we have not seen value for money uh, in the way in which I think we had all hoped, uh, and it will take considerable time. And it is, in my view, in every sense, a partnership effort it is not something uh, that we can deal with on our side as the exalted font of all wisdom uh, about how other countries uh, might move themselves closer to the 21st century. It is a partnership challenge and indeed, I believe, a partnership solution. I talk briefly about energy, climate change, and the environment. In my country, there are still many people who do not accept the notion of climate change as a scientific reality. It is, in that sense, a very difficult problem to persuade wide numbers of people that very large expenditures are probably going to be required against a theory that not all of them accept, uh, and with respect to the results, some uncertainty of what might be produced. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the issue is gaining salience, and the solutions are gaining ground. And we all know that the intimate relationship between energy, environment, and climate change uh, will keep us all heavily occupied uh, in a serious and indeed challenging effort uh, to deal with the problem. Uh, and I came today from Moscow, and for the last three days, Moscow has enjoyed temperatures of 80 or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that means, but certainly it's evidence <laughs> that we have to take into account. And the final point I would make on challenges ahead, for my own country, uh, we have a government that was organized in 1947 last to deal effectively with security and foreign policy challenges, and we need to move ahead. Uh, we need to adopt what others, I believe, are trying to adopt how can we bring the whole of our government to bear on the myriad problems we face around the world, just as we attempt to do uh, for our domestic issues? This is not, in my view, 
all so terribly hard. Um, but it takes the unwinding of 19th and 20th century traditions about who deals with what. Uh, and in fact, what I think is a paucity of partnership in domestic governments. But even more, the second part of that question has to do with international institutions. Are there ways in which we can strengthen and indeed build the kind of international institutions which will serve the sort of purpose that we hope and make them available to deal with some of the interrelated issues I've been discussing? From the Security Council of the United Nations through the G20 and the G8 uh, to the specialized agencies and indeed <clears throat> to the numerous alphabetic, unpronounceable, and indeed growing numbers of international institutions we have created uh, to fill the gap and to meet the needs, uh, we have some enormous challenges. Some of those have to do with coordination. Others have to do with what's appropriate. Uh, it seems to me uh, that it's entirely appropriate to think about change at the Security Council of the United Nations in ways that will bring major players not thought of as such in the heady days of 1945 uh, into the mix of major decision makers that will proceed to help and bind the world community in the efforts to meet threats to peace and security. The Indias and the Japans and the Brazils, to name a few. It is also, in my view, something to be thought about and I guarantee you that any representative of one of the five permanent members would be immediately certified as lunatic to raise the question, but I'm raising it with you. And I'm not yet ready to be certified. How and in what way can we take some of the curse off the veto in the Security Council, which is seemingly now being used for peripheral interests rather than major questions of serious and indeed high priority to the state's concern. I worry particularly about actions in the Security Council to deal with genocide. I don't believe this will happen, but it would be in my view something useful to think about in bringing the members of the Security Council together uh, on resolutions to deal with genocide, if they could raise their standards a little bit in terms of how and in what way they would react. It is the most extreme case, perhaps, of the responsibility to protect. And it would be very valuable if, in fact, the five permanent members could reach some agreement among themselves. Uh, an agreement that might say, unless two or three agreed, that the text of the resolution was, from their point of view, so obnoxious that they would veto they would find a way to work with the others uh, and indeed to accept a higher standard of pain uh, before in fact uh, they agreed uh, to reduce the capacity of the Security Council to a deal with that kind of an extreme danger. Uh, but that's important. Now let me turn to other steps that we might look at in the way ahead. With respect to my own country, I would like to tie use of force uh, to major issues of self-defense and indeed questions that we might take up in the Security Council to deal uh, with threats to peace and security on the order of aggression 
uh, non-proliferation and genocide. I think that that makes important. That's important. I think for my country, the two big issues are survival and prosperity. And those are the ones should call upon us for the highest priority kinds of actions. And we have, as, as, as you may have observed, and many countries have a terribly difficult job in prioritizing uh, the relative effort they will put in to these kinds of problems and the ways in which uh, they will work at them. Uh, we need to focus and strengthen, as I said earlier, our ability to deal with the multipolar world and the growing strength of many countries who either have to be brought into the decision-making activities or, in fact, we have to understand the consequences of their being left out. There ought to be respect for their ideas, but there also ought to be a singular persuasive effort to continue to meet the kind of standards that they and we are all committed in instruments as important as the United Nations Charter, the Declaration of Human Rights, and so on. I think it is also significant that as we deal with states in my country, which we consider the potentially rival or partner, uh, that we begin to adopt strategies, uh, particularly with respect to the major ones, uh, where the focus in a bilateral sense is on what I call win-win strategies. There are two interesting examples, one back in 1972 uh, when President Nixon uh, visited China, spoke with Chairman Mao, but the instrument that came out of that particular meeting that was most significant was the agreement to disagree on Taiwan. And in a way, an agreement to disagree is not an awful result if the alternatives are conflict or indeed uh, unending uh, ability to find ways to move ahead. And they set the stage, uh, just as I think other efforts have set the stage. In the Obama administration, uh, the effort to find a way to move to a next stage reduction of nuclear weapons was the item, uh, because of its win-win potential, the Russians had no real capacity to pay for maintaining a nuclear force at the levels previously agreed upon uh, to bring about a reset policy in a relationship. Win-win uh, has an obvious ability to pledge partners to questions that are of mutual interest uh, and indeed, in my view, to begin overshadowing the negative questions <coughs> that so often become preeminent. Uh, in the US and Russia, uh, each plays a significant role in the other's electoral politics in a very negative way. Uh, without a win-win commitment, uh, US-Russian relationships often descend very quickly into what I call ankle-kicking. And ankle-kicking is popular locally, uh, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And as long as, in fact, you allow the negatives to begin to dominate the relationship, then all policies, in one way or another, tend to fall in that hole. But if you've got a series of important common goals that can bring about answers to questions in which there is a real common interest, you can begin to set the framework and overshadow what it is that is causing problems. 
I'm acutely interested, I've promised to answer questions. And so let me end by saying that I think there is no single easy paradigm to discuss how and in what way over the decades to come we could describe what it is we should be thinking about in foreign affairs and security policy. Several of the things that I think I've said can begin to suggest ways to go about that, uh, even if they are insufficient as single descriptors of what should happen. Uh, but one of those is engagement. Engagement in problems, engagement in relationships, engagement in breaking the 32-year separation uh, between the United States and Iran uh, are all, I think, major factors of how we're going to have to operate in the period ahead. Uh, my country is extremely lucky, but I think we share this with many. As we look around the world today, we seemingly have no serious potential enemy. And those that might become serious potential enemies may well uh, be those states when we treat with them diplomatically along some of the approaches that I have discussed, uh, we can avoid that kind of catastrophic contingency. And so while containment uh, may have been a useful word to describe how to deal with the Soviet Union in the long and very trying period of the Cold War, even its author, George Frost Kennan, spent many more hours and many more pages uh, trying to avoid what he called the misinterpretations of his own vision about how we should deal with the Soviet Union. Today we have the opportunity uh, to use diplomacy uh, in ways that I believe are apt and correct and important. It will not solve all problems, but in my view is like Churchill's description of democracy, uh, perhaps the least worst of all the efforts to get there. Thank you very much.